hey, this is Ed. So this is a podcast, is that right? This is. Okay. We're officially podcasting right now. That's awesome. This is Straight from the Cutter's Mouth. Welcome to Straight from the Cutter's Mouth, a retina podcast. At least once a week, we aim to bring you insights and perspectives from the world of vitreoretinal surgery. I'm your host, Dr. Jay Schreeder. Today on episode 290, we have a very unique episode. The topic of private equity acquisitions in ophthalmology, and particularly in vitreoretinal surgery, have elicited a lot of discussion and a lot of controversy. And so we decided to put together a pretty unique series of interviews to kind of paint the picture of the private equity landscape and to kind of give full time to all perspectives. So we have five different mini interviews that were going to be included asking questions to people who have experience with private equity. We start with a uh, non-medical person who is involved in the private equity business and industry. Then we have kind of people discussing from different perspectives. First will be a doctor whose practice sold to private equity. Next will be a doctor whose practice has chosen not to sell to private equity, and both those doctors are partners in their respective retina-only practices. We then transition to discussing with an associate who joined a practice sold to private equity after the sale, and we finished with an associate who was part of a practice as an associate during a sale. We gave all of our correspondents the option of anonymity. Um, that was to help protect their privacy and also hopefully allow them to speak more candidly and more freely. Some of the correspondents took us up on it. Some of us didn't. Uh, in order to protect their anonymity, we'll not be releasing the names of the correspondents. And we've also modified it voices to match so that people try to remain as anonymous as possible. So again, I hope you enjoy this episode. I think this has been a long time coming, something like this in our field to give some more perspective and guidance to people looking at these sales as partners, looking at these practices as um, fellows or young associates looking at different jobs. And uh, I hope you enjoy. Remember that you can claim CME credits for this podcast episode and many other podcast episodes by clicking on the link in the episode description. Financial disclosures, we can't list financial disclosures for all contributors because of the anonymity, but we will kind of list out um, where people's associations were, and hopefully that helps with CME. Hope you enjoy. Thank you. Straight from the Cutter's Mouth is now happy to be joined by Mr. Teg Margaret. Uh, Ted is a manager director in the investment bank at Chartwell and has a unique kind of perspective on private equity in general. And um, he has some personal ties to private equity in ophthalmology, at least in terms of evaluating that decision. First of all, Ted, thanks for joining us. Absolutely, Jay. Glad to be here this morning. So give our listeners a perspective. You know, usually we have position guests on and kind of talk about their educational background and how they arrived where they are today. You're a non-physician, but someone who has ties to the field. So give us a little background, first of all, on, on your credentials and what you do for a living, and then how you're kind of got an interest in private equity and ophthalmology, or why at least it's on your radar. Absolutely. Uh, happy to. So my, I'll start with my tie to ophthalmology. Um, so I've, my wife, uh, Elizabeth Atchison, is a retina surgeon at a physician-owned uh, multi-specialty practice in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, called Ophthalmology Limited. My firm, Chartwell, we're based in Minneapolis, which is where I office out of, um, and we have eight offices nationally. What I, what I specialize in at Chartwell is helping uh, founder-owned and entrepreneurial family-owned businesses uh, transition their ownership. Uh, for example, I'm sure your, your readers can go online if they want to see more, but um, my last client was Taylor Guitars and helping uh, the founders of that business um, actually sell to their employees. 
but we do all sorts of different transactions, whether it's selling to private equity, selling to larger, you know, whether it's a, a competitor or what we call strategic buyers, et cetera. Um, and where the intersection uh, really happened here is that I, I have worked with a number of different physician practices, uh, both in ophthalmology as well as outside radiology, GI, et cetera. Um, and I've seen that transition to private equity. And I've also seen it from my role as an advice, you know, corporate sell-side advisor uh, in that uh, transition in other ways. So let's talk a little bit, first of all, about private equity acquisitions. This is part of an episode and we're going to have, we're going to have multiple kind of perspectives from people who have actually personal experience as a physician, either working in that practice or being in the situation of selling as a partner, selling as an associate, joining as an associate, there's all kinds of different perspectives. And, and I think the reason this is kind of a quote unquote controversial issue in ophthalmology is because of course the perspectives are going to differ depending on which side of the fence you're on. So first of all, kind of your perspectives on, you know, people who own a practice, why they may be interested in private equity and what are kind of the potential pros and cons? Yeah, and that's a, that's a great lead in. And, and, you know, from my role in advising business owner sellers in these sorts of transactions, I, I actually understand where they're coming from. Now, as the husband of a, um, you know, relatively younger uh, retina surgeon, um, we were not interested in joining a private equity-owned practice, but that I think highlights that distinction. So, from the from the perspective of the seller, you know, they, they've worked a career building, <clears throat> excuse me, building a practice, and at the end of their career, for the most part, or towards the end of their career, they're they're looking at how can they unlock the value that they've built, and frankly, the value they're entitled to. Uh, you know, they these practices they they've built the systems, they've hired all the support staff you know, uh, forge the referral relationships, et cetera, there, there's real economic value to what they've done. So I, I don't, uh, I don't uh, view that decision in a negative light, um, but from the perspective of the incoming physician, it, it does raise various concerns. So I think one of the common things, so again, and I'm coming again, I'm five years out, but I'm still kind of in that younger perspective mode, maybe because I just have fellows advised or looking for jobs. You know, I think sometimes the, one of the big disagreements between the generations is older physicians saying, well, you know, our private equity situation is a little different. You know, ophthalmology went through its private equity acquisition in the late 90s and 2000s, and that failed. But this is a different model, right? We're maintaining a certain degree of autonomy. This is different. And so, and obviously, I think every private equity deal is structured, I'm sure, very differently. It's pretty complicated. But how much autonomy do the physicians maintain generally, right? So like if, if you sell your practice to private equity, I'm sure you maintain some sort of stake. How much decision power do the physicians have at that point versus the people who are actually investing their money as the private equity investors? Yeah, this is a great question. And I think we, where you have to start is where you have to understand that most states uh, under state law still require that the actual medical practice be owned by physicians. So how most of these transactions are structured is that you, you set up a management uh, company that basically hires the schedulers, the billers, so on and so forth. And that management company is entitled to a certain percentage of revenue profit. It's defined a whole bunch of different ways, um, but they're entitled to a large portion of the economics of the medical practice in exchange for that management. And it's that management company is actually what private equity is acquiring. So to, to directly answer your question, the physicians 
on the surface maintain you know quite a good bit of of autonomy but where wherein lies uh, i think the potential concern is that that autonomy on the surface really is the veneer over the compensation structure for the individual physician and it, it in almost every case that i've seen is very driven on productivity and i think therein lies the potential conflict Right. And the other thing I struggle with is I feel like the private equity organization comes in and generally there's some sort of stated objectives. You know, our objective is to be a world-class organization, continue to offer the same level of care or to combine groups or whether it's across retina groups or between retina and other um, referring practices like an optometry or comprehensive ophthalmologist practice. There's called so-called horizontal and vertical integration, but whatever it is, there's a mission statement for the organization. And I always just find that confusing and fellows will ask me, and I don't really know what to say because on the other hand, people are telling me, well, the goal of this organization is ultimately to sell. They're not necessarily looking to extract value by holding this. So which is true? Can both be true? Are there situations where private equity is buying and looking to hold long-term and they're deriving their value from actually the day-to-day finances of the practices they've purchased? Or is it always we're buying this to increase the value and sell for a higher valuation at a later point? It's the latter. So private equity, uh, and again, I'm going to cut a very broad cloth here. Private equity, as a rule, is looking to hold their investments for five years plus minus. Mm-hmm. And the goal is, is to increase value as much as possible over that five-year period and delever because most of the purchase price that private equity is paying is, is from debt. Um, so by delevering and growing the business, they're increasing the, you know, their equity value, which is what creates sort of their, what they're looking for is a 20 to 25% annual rate of return. And so that, that's the model. And the only way to get that kind of a return is to have that exit liquidity event as soon as possible. So, so, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I mean, my, my question is then, so what are kind of the typical mechanisms in medicine that you would achieve that, right? Because I mean, it, you can buy something and hope it, it's not like buying a house. I mean, I guess you can buy a house and make home improvements or hope the market goes up, but like there has to be an active sort of process to get that sort of increase in value unless you really bought something well below value. So like what sort of actions are being taken generally to increase value? Exactly. And, and this is where I have some concerns. So and I'm going to compare a medical practice to like a, a widget manufacturer. So in the widget manufacturer sense, when private equity goes in there, what they're looking to do is make and sell more widgets, right? Grow revenue, or they're looking to make and sell more widgets more efficiently, increase their profit margin, And taking that example, highly simplistic example, but taking that example over to medicine, you can increase productivity, make more widgets, see more, see more patients, do more procedures, or you can do it more efficiently. And where I, for for the new physician, what that means is on the productivity side, their compensation is going to be much more tied to productivity than certainly it would be at a hospital and certainly much more than it is in an academic uh, role. Um, and, and really what you typically see is a, you know, low base salary and then, you know, fairly large productivity bonuses based on whether it's RBU or, you know, collections or, or whatever, um, many ways to do that. But, but that's what that model is based on. Now, what I, what I question is, is if the goal is to be more productive, make more widgets, the physician doesn't really need private equity to do that. They just need to work harder. 
And so from that perspective, private equity extracts the value through their ownership, but isn't adding anything that the physician couldn't do on their own. On the flip side, on the efficiency side, where private equity is fairly notorious is under their ownership, it, it's sort of management by spreadsheet. And so there's lots of analysis. You'll look at you know, collections, you'll look at all sorts of metrics on how you can extract more value per each procedure. And there, I, I, would, uh, I would, wouldn't doubt that private equity you know, can extract value, but I, I would also propose that you know, if a physician was determined enough, I'm sure that they could figure out how to, you know, at least get the lion's share of that efficiency as well. And so when you put that together, where the private equity model, I, I think, relies more, more than anything, and, and you could make the argument that some of these larger roll-ups, for example, the group that bought VRS recently, I think part of their, also their model is trying to get more negotiating leverage with, with the private insurance world and there may or may not be validity to that. Uh, certainly in the retina world where, where you know, a number of the patients are, are Medicare, um, there's no negotiating leverage there. Um, so you know, take that for, for what it's worth. But I, I think where a lot of this comes down to is um, physician compensation. Uh, physician compensation under a private equity model, I, I would argue, will be lower than it would be under a physician-owned model. And I think that's where they're extracting value. And, and I can go through an example of you know, what, what that looks like and how value is actually calculated when private equity is doing their acquisition. Let's, let's come back to that value calculation because I think that's fascinating. But, but this kind of feeds in, you know, we talked about the very beginning, the two perspectives, right? And so perspective of the partner who may want to sell the pros and cons. Now, mm -hmm. As the junior person, if you're joining or if you don't have yet in your practice that sort of ownership, you don't necessarily have a choice. So I don't think it's relevant to maybe ask if you'd want to do it. Usually you wouldn't want to do it. But the question is, what do you do if it is an option opportunity or you're in, in a situation where your practice sells to private equity? These are all kind of good perspectives to, to kind of know what to expect. And I think uncertainty is what really makes people anxious more than anything. Um, although worse situations make people unhappy, it's sometimes just the uncertainty of not even knowing what's going to happen. So I know you're not a, a contract lawyer and I know you're not involved on that side of it, but what about like, what's the general kind of trend in what happens to physicians deals as practices get flipped, right? So like private equity organization, a buys a practice, you sign with that practice, you're an associate in that practice. You have a certain deal. Like you said, there may be a productivity calculation, a bonus calculation, things like that. When they're flipped again. And like you said, the average shelf life is about five years is can the deals be rewritten? What sort of things can you expect? Are there any ways to know what to expect at that point? Are you usually drastic changes in physician compensation? Are they usually mild? Any, any sort of data points you know regarding what happens with multiple sales? Yeah, so in that, in that second transaction, um, the, the, the seller, so that the original private equity firm that, that bought the physician from the, from the physicians, they are going to want to write contracts that require no changes because anytime if you set say a, a five-year term and you have to renew that all you're doing is you're giving the physician a new opportunity to renegotiate mm. so if if the private equity firm is paying attention they will structure basically a, a, a per, perpetual contract and then what that contract is is between the practice and the physician and so when the practice is sold 
the contract goes with it and the new buyer doesn't have to renegotiate, that eliminates risk it, it, and conversely increases value to the seller. And so the, the contract that you have, I would, I would tell you to expect to continue unless that buyer feels that their negotiating leverage with the physicians is such that they can force changes uh, without the risk of the physicians demanding things in their favor. Very interesting. So, so let's go back to the idea of valuation calculations, let's say, because I think this is where kind of junior associates and maybe even some people in position sale, their eyes kind of glaze over as doctors because they hear all these terms and they're not really sure what to make of it. And we hear of things like EBITDA and, and things like that. Um, and you talked about the valuation. So like, give us kind of a, I know you're talking to a quote unquote uneducated audience in this, in this field. So it's a little tough, but kind of the breakdown of valuation as you were kind of teasing earlier. Yeah. So overall retina practices sell for between 10 to 12 times earnings cash flow. In the valuation sort of finance world, cash flow is referred to as EBITDA, which means earnings before EB, interest taxes, IT, depreciation and amortization. What that really means is cash flow. How much cash did the company generate in a given year? Where in the medical world, that's a bit different is that in a physician-owned practice, generally, all the profits are paid out to the physicians every year. So if in your practice, after you pay for your tech, your nurse, your drugs, so on and so forth, if you generated a profit of $800,000, that would be your income for the year. The, the problem with that from a valuation perspective, it means is that if you're paying out all your profit, your, your overall profit as a firm is zero, your EBITDA is zero, which means it theoretically has no value, but of course we know it does. So what, what happens in this process is the contract with the physician is renegotiated such that now let's say um, that instead of 800,000, the contract says that, you know, if you hit various productivity goals, so on and so forth, your compensation would be 400,000. And that 400,000 is selected by looking at what is the market to hire and, uh, re and retain a comparable physician in that market. So for example, in Chicago, from what I understand, um, compensation is lower than it is in uh, Rapid City uh, or you know, Cheyenne, Wyoming or someplace like that. And so they look to the local market to say, what, what does it cost us to hire a replacement physician? And that becomes the benchmark. And so in this example, what, what would happen is you would have an, what we call an adjustment to EBITDA of 400,000. So what you're assuming is that going forward, the physician earns 400, not 800, and now you have 400,000 in profit. Now that 400,000 in profit then multiplied by 10 to 12 times EBITDA gets you to your value. And so that's, that's how valuation works. And that actually can be a real simple shorthand for figuring out why you know, some doctors would want to sell and why some others wouldn't. So put yourself in the, in the situation where you were a younger physician making that 800,000. And let's say you had 20 years left in your career. Well, if you had 20 years left in your career at making 800,000, that is more than uh, 20 years at 400 plus the purchase price, plus the, the 4 million or 4.8 million. The shorthand is if, you're, if your timing in your career is less than the multiple, 
10 to 12, you're better off selling. You're willing to take a lower compensation, get that purchase price, because overall you're getting paid more. On the flip side, if, you're, if your view is longer, then you'd be better off not selling and maintaining your higher salary. And that's an oversimplification. You know, you can look at present values and whatnot, but that is, a, I think, a good shorthand to understand the difference between the perspectives between older owner physicians and younger, whether they own or not, who have longer tenors and are looking at what is their annual compensation and how does that change? Right. Right. Yeah. And so let's get to the, the kind of the punchline, which is the hardest question is when, you know, our fellows, younger folks ask us to like, well, I'm not in the position of selling. I'm just in the position where I'm trying to find a job and, you know, I'm either joining practices and now I'm kind of concerned any practice could sell to private equity or I'm being offered jobs at groups that are already owned by private equity. What are kind of things that, what, what advice would you give them? I mean, at some point, like that, what they'll frankly tell me is, I don't necessarily have many more options. I could open my own practice, but I'm not necessarily in a position to do that, or I don't know if I'm capable of doing that. Or I could join an existing group, but try to figure out things that would quote unquote help me protect me, or what are some of the important things to kind of look at? Or if I am joining a private equity group, what are the kind of the important things to look at? Any sort of advice for those situations? Because unfortunately, it seems we have a dwindling pool of practices that are A, not, either not owned by private equity, or B, are not at risk of being bought by private equity during your associate period. Right. And, and my thought there would be, you know, you can always open your own practice. That is a daunting proposition, though, coming out of fellowship, probably saddled with some debt, et cetera. Um, and so while that on the surface, you know, would be, you know, I, I think in a, a potential option that realistically probably isn't. And, and I think maybe just stepping out of the finance side for a second, you also have to figure out, you know, where do you want to live, right? You can't let the tail wag the dog. And if, if you have family and, you know, X, Y, Z, and you want to live in X, Y, Z, join the practice. Um, it's not like a retina surgeon is going to be living hand to mouth wherever they work. So I, I think that you have to start with, you know, your bigger life and what your goals and, and objectives are, but between multiple options, um, you know, for someone who wants to start off in private equity, just understand what you're signing up for and understand that it is a different game and your ownership structure likely will change several times over the course of your career. But I would also offer that um, joining private equity to, or really any practice, you know, with signing a non-compete and depending upon your jurisdiction, that non-compete is going to be more or less uh, enforceable but you are going to sign a non-compete. So if you do say want to live in one city, um, but don't want to work for, for a private equity owned practice, want to own your own practice. If you have the flexibility, you can work somewhere else for a time and then relocate and open your own practice when you're more you know, financially in a position to do that and, and avoid the non-compete trap. Um, the problem with the non-compete is once you are under it, um, the private equity firm is going to be very aggressive in enforcing that against you. And so moving geographies will, will sidestep that uh, and allow you to, to do that if, if owning your own practice is a goal and it isn't possible given that, you know, to your point, there, there are fewer and fewer physician-owned practices out there. Um, but I also think the other thing to consider is, you know, what is your goal? If you are looking at this from a purely financial perspective, I would offer that, you know, I think private equity can run all sorts of Excel sheets, but there is no substitute for owning. Um, and so from a financial perspective, I think that clearly owning your own, uh, 
practice is, is the, the preferred way to go. Um, on the other hand, if, if you're looking at it from the perspective of, hey, I can earn a good living and, you know, maybe do other, other things outside, outside pursuits, you know, working at a hospital or in an academic sense might make more sense. I think where private equity comes in is, is that they're getting people that, that need to live in a certain area and overall, you know, need, need that starting salary, um, but long-term without that ownership incentive, direct ownership, not, you know, you will have some, what we call equity incentive programs um, at a private equity owned firm. But if you want direct equity ownership and to have that equity appreciation that the founder of that practice had, there's no substitute for owning your own clinic. Ted, I really appreciate giving us some insights uh, into kind of the behind the scenes, a little bit about how this works and giving some information that's helpful for people across the age and career spectrum as retina physicians and ophthalmologists. So thanks again and have a great rest of the day. Thank you, Jay. You too. Straight from the Cutter's Mouth is now happy to be joined by Dr. David Williams. Dr. Williams is at Bitcher Retinal Surgery PA in Minneapolis, Minnesota. He's joining us for this special episode on private equity, uh, representing someone who was a partner at a practice that did decide to sell to private equity. Dr. Williams, thanks for joining us. Oh, you're most welcome, Jay. So let's take listeners back. You know, some of our listeners have may have read your pieces. You've written a couple pieces for Retina Times and other publications that have circulated. You wrote a piece a couple of years ago about why you're choosing not to sell the private equity. Uh, and then you wrote a recent piece after you sold explaining why you did sell. But for those who haven't read it or want to hear, so what changed your prior stance against the private equity sale? And why did you and your partners decide to sell? Well, I think, uh, first, I think, uh, I think about this conceptually uh, about our transaction as not being quote, selling to private equity, close quote, but in fact, joining with and in fact, co-investing with a financial partner that has the resources to facilitate consolidation of retina across the United States in a manner that will be favorable to the physicians in our group by allowing us to better respond to future systemic changes in the healthcare system that may well challenge our business model in very negative ways. We decided to tell because in our particular situation, we saw an opportunity to align our practice with a nationwide organization of retina groups, each of which is very analogous to our own. These are groups populated by retina specialists who have been my colleagues and indeed my friends throughout my career. I tell a story that I remember at conferences over the years, sitting with my retina specialist friends late into the evening over dinner or drinks and extolling the virtues of our successful practices which were scattered across the country and speculating about the potential synergies that we could enjoy if somehow we could aggregate into a retina supergroup. And in those days prior to private equity, we really didn't really conceive of a mechanism to do such a thing. But now with Retina Consultants of America, that's exactly what we have, uh, a retina supergroup. Now, yes, what changed our prior stance against the sale? Now, previously, we had a lot of opportunities to partner with uh, private equity beginning in early 2017, and we rejected all of them. Uh, previously, we had thought of private equity aggregations of ophthalmology groups in a very narrow way based on what we had seen happening over the years, which was the so-called vertical aggregations consisting of variations of optometry, comprehensive ophthalmology, and ophthalmology subspecialists, primarily retina. We, over the years, did not perceive a vertical aggregation to be attracted to us for a number of reasons. You know, first, we weren't pressured in our region by large vertical aggregations that were threatening our referral network. 
we saw a potential downside to aligning formally with a vertical aggregation that consisted of only a small fraction of our own referral network. And finally, we were concerned that our interests as retina specialists were not necessarily ideally aligned with a larger group of primary eye care providers, particularly when one thinks about the longer term future and the potential for subsequent business transactions down the road. With RCA, uh, my group's referral network is unaffected. Uh, nothing has changed. The interests of our physicians are very closely aligned with our retina specialist colleagues all across the nation. I think that we will in fact be able to take advantage of economies of scale in the world of retina uh, across the country. And most importantly, I believe that having 100 or 150 or potentially 200 committed and aligned retina specialists will be a formidable negotiating force uh, when it comes to the time for future transactions. Yeah, I mean, that's great. And it's interesting to hear that perspective historically about the idea of aligning cross boundaries, cross states. Obviously, we have groups that have existed cross state boundaries. There's certain areas of the country where that's easier. Uh, Minnesota, where you're at, Florida, I'm at, I mean, it's a little harder unless you're right on the border of a state. I'm way down in the tip of Miami, but we have plenty of groups that have crossed state lines before and linked up and merged. Um, but this is a, obviously on a much larger scale. So, I mean, you referenced that you haven't really noticed any changes since the practice sold. Do you anticipate any long-term changes? Like are there things you, you and your partners have talked about in the five, 10 or 15 year horizon that would be different? Yeah, first let me address the, the, the short-term uh, changes. And, and the, the answer to that is we've seen no changes in our day-to-day lives since our transactions, save one, which I'll get to. And I think this is very important uh, to point out in our situation. You know, no one outside of our practice is telling us what to do. No one from the private equity group is in our offices. We have all the same administrators and employees. We practice as before. We manage the business, our employees, and our schedule as before. And our personal and clinical autonomy is enshrined in the legal documents governing our transaction. Now, the biggest change is that there is a fair number uh, of RCA committee calls uh, through which the physicians indeed guide the organization forward. There are multiple committees that have been formed that are, uh, that are comprised by physicians, things like contracting finance, education, compliance, coding, recruitment, acquisitions, and so forth. These committees are populated by physicians as well as some of the uh, administrative staff from Retina Consultants of America. But it's through these committees that the RCA physicians exert a major influence on the direction of our organization. So in the short run, there's been no change in in our day-to-day lives, but we have a little bit more responsibility in terms of guiding the organization. Now, longer term, we think that our integration with RCA will offer a number of benefits, uh, including a better facilitation of growth of our practice. We think it's going to allow us to better expand our impact on our region of the country, help us to provide care, bring care to more underserved areas of our region, and in fact, create greater stability for our physicians and provide greater long-term financial and career success for us uh, in a very uncertain future. Yeah, I mean, and I think you referenced a little bit of the uncertain future. That's one of the things you wrote about in your paper, reimbursement, kind of the changes to retina practices. Um, we transition maybe from a more injection heavy practice with some of the newer agents that are more durable or 
potentially curative with gene therapy uh, over time. No, so let, let's transition to, you know, I think one of the big things that's interesting, one of the reasons I chose to do this episode and talk about this is I think there's such interesting varying perspectives on private equity. And it, it's interesting to hear from people who have directly interacted with them because I feel it's one of those things everyone has opinion with, but let, most people haven't had experience with. So one of the things I, I've thought about, I've heard, and I deal with a lot of fellows and younger attendings is kind of, are there differences in what's kind of expected of a younger associate, right? So I feel like every practice is different, but a traditional retina practice, a younger associate comes in, you know, they put in a certain number of years to earn a partnership ownership stake. They are, you know, sort of required, I guess is the right word, expected to do practice building, to outreach, and often they're building a new offices, they're building their patient base. They're doing certain things that are important, especially if you're going to take ownership in this practice over time. Now with this private equity model, there may be ways for associates in different models to get some sort of ownership stake, but it's a little different. It's often a little more like getting or, or stock options or some sort of incentive-based um, pay. So you have some interest in the company you're working with is, is true in the tech industry, but maybe not the more traditional pure ownership that was seen before. So my question for you is, as someone who may be doing hiring, do you need, what are sort of the differences you think will happen in terms of how younger associates who are hired need to be recruited, incentivized, motivated? Do you feel like, I mean, my concern would be there's gonna be a disconnect at some point where you're gonna hire people with a certain expectation, but they're gonna come up with a different set of expectations. Part of that is generational, but part of that may be due to their expectations of the practice model. Yeah, I think those are those are good questions. I think I think a major issue in this area is that physicians in general have really little experience in the world of business and with private equity, you know, in particular. You know, fellows are exposed largely to academic physicians who may have even less experience in business and tend to, in my experience, have a knee-jerk negative reaction to the concept of private equity in medicine and, and then don't, you know, are not able to provide a balanced view. I mean, I think the greatest challenge uh, is to educate younger physicians about the role of private equity in business and to try to disabuse them of the stereotypical emotional reaction that private equity is evil, evil that it will rob you of your autonomy, you know, impair future earning potential and lead to a less satisfying career. With RCA, these things could not be further from the truth. You know, the, we had uh, young associates that were in our practice uh, when we sold and we had an associate that, that joined the practice right at about the time we sold. And I, I think anyone could talk to them and, and they would say that nothing has changed for them. There are, they are still on a partnership track in our group uh, and their partnership track is actually uh, shorter than it was pre-transaction for us. Uh, their incomes actually, uh, the income structure for our associates uh, went up. And so they're, they're, they have a larger income at the beginning of their uh, relationship with VRS, and uh, they'll be my part. And in three years, they'll be my full partner with all the same influence within the practice that I have, along along with our other uh, partners. Uh, they they will be owners uh, of stock uh, in uh, RCA, uh, so they 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 are co-invested with me in RCA. Uh, and they have the same opportunities that I have going forward uh, to grow along with RCA and to take advantage of the benefits that we think that it's going to bring to our practice. Right. And, and I think one of the things that's interesting in terms of incentivizing people is what motivates people varies depending greatly on the person. And, and I think that will probably, I mean, we have 
the same pool, quote unquote, of fellows coming out every year. But I think there are changes. And I, I, we see those changes. I'm sure you see it on the hiring level over the years you've been at the practice. And we've seen that here. What sort of people looking for in a practice? So let's let's flip side. So let's say you were on the other side. You were not a partner. Let's say you were retired on a beach. And it's one of your children right now who is a fellow and a practice or a fellow looking for a job. What would you tell them in terms of assessing private equity owned practices? It seems like there is a shift, as we've talked about, where more and more retina practices will be owned by some or partnered with some sort of private equity organization. So what should they be looking for in a private equity owned practice? What questions should they be asking? What would you tell your own son or daughter about the differences between private equity entities that are important to understand before taking a job? Yeah, I think I'd like to step back for one second and 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 comment that you know private equity affiliated practices are just one, is is a relatively new uh, structure of practice uh, in the United States today. I mean, it, people can finish their fellowship and they can go uh, to work at an academic institution in which they're in the academic bureaucracy, in which certainly your autonomy can be somewhat limited. Uh, they can go to work for a managed care organizations, you know, such as Kaiser Permanente in California, uh, in which, you know, they are subject to the, uh, to the rules of the bureaucratic organization and the administrative staff in an organization like that, or they can go into uh, a private practice where you're subject to the, 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 the storms that take place in the healthcare environment uh, in the United States. Uh, and private equity is just a new option for people to look at. I think that in general, in the bigger scheme, the most important factor for a young physician considering a practice opportunity is the quality and the character of the physicians in the practice they're looking at, regardless of the business structure of the practice. I mean, bad partners will lead to a bad situation for the young physician, no matter the structure. So I think that the fellow should first carefully research the community reputation of the practice you're looking at. You know, they should certainly look at the partnership timeline and structure and really try to investigate the internal structure, uh, internal culture of the practice. Now, with regard to private equity affiliated practices, I think they should try to understand the motivating factors that led the practice to go the PE route. And of course, that it should not be primarily related to money. If everybody was just trying to cash out, and I think that's difficult to do anyway, uh, but if they get the sense that everybody was just trying to cash out, that's not a situation that I think somebody wants to get into. Uh, but uh, so I think they should look at the overall motivation that the physicians in the practice uh, had to pursue that route. And then they need to investigate the level of the personal and clinical independence and autonomy that exists in the practice uh, that's affiliated with private equity. And really look at the plan the practice has to maintain physician autonomy and clinical quality in the future, uh, particularly with regard to the potential for future transactions. That's what's going to lead to a, a satisfying career in which one feels uh, valued and that you have an influence and a role to play uh, in the delivery of quality of care to our patients. Now, I think regardless of the structure of the practice that one chooses, again, I'll go back to that issue that I think that, you know, the future is inherently uncertain. So I think aligning oneself with smart, dedicated, high quality people who are actively planning for uncertainty and trying to position themselves to thrive in any environment is the smartest move. 
Dr. Williams, thanks again for taking the time to talk to us and be part of this uh, multi-part episode. We appreciate the perspective you bring, and I'm sure fellows and younger attendees listening, looking at job opportunities, or even partners out in practice who are looking at these opportunities coming through, are going to appreciate it. So thank you again. Thank you, Jake. Straight from the cutter's mouth is now happy to be joined by a senior retinal surgeon at a large uh, uh, retina-only uh, private practice. Um, and so thank you so much for joining me, doctor. So just to start, um, right now we're recording this in March 2021. Obviously, things can be fluid or change over time, but as of now, your practice has not sold to private equity. First things first, have you been, have you been approached at any point by a private equity firm? And if so, how far did that process go? Thank you. Thanks for having me along. I, uh, we have been approached on many occasions uh, over the last couple of years. Uh, I would say they were largely fishing expeditions. Uh, none of them went far because we have not expressed serious interest. Uh, so other than a, a, a hello and an introduction, we, we haven't really gone past that. So why is that? So are there specific reasons um, in terms of the practice, uh, maybe that are specific to the practice that you'd be comfortable talking about? Is it something more general about private equity? Uh, I know and people sometimes talk about us about the where doctors are kind of in the stage of their careers. What's the biggest reason that your practice has not considered or gone seriously along with those talks? So we've talked about it a lot uh, on many occasions, and uh, we're a large practice with a broad range of uh, partners in terms of their beliefs. Uh, and as you mentioned, the point in the career is quite variable. Our structure is such that the, the vote and the voice of a junior associate is the same as a senior associate. And although there are a few senior doctors who are not comfortable with private equity, uh, there are also many more junior doctors who are not remotely interested in private equity. So we haven't bothered exploring because there simply isn't the will. It's not that we're not curious or interested, but every time we look, we think it's just not for us. So I guess the, the last question, which is relevant and is often brought up as something within private equity that's something to consider, uh, what would have to change, right, for, for private equity to be something that you consider? And, and people talk about different dynamics, for example, retina practices, um, like other subspecialty practices in medicine uh, are very reliant on referred patients. Very few patients actually call and, and immediately see a retina specialist. Usually they start with a primary eye care provider. So one of the things that has been discussed in other areas of medicine, now in ophthalmology, is if the referrals are coming from private equity, that may dictate a, ultimately a sale to private equity. Is this a concern that, that you have had looking at the landscape and, and, and basically, if not, then what else would have to change for private equity to be a viable option? We are in a large metropolitan area, and there certainly has been uh, the presence of private equity felt in our community, our region. I don't think it is likely that private equity will consume enough of the region to leave us feeling like that is our only option. Uh, the, the fundamental principles or driving philosophy of private equity to us is they create value either mm -hmm. by improving efficiencies and profitability of an entity that isn't well run or by extracting profit by reducing the fruits of the labor of the people who create the profit. And given that construct, it's actually hard for me to believe there will ever be a circumstance where we will choose private equity. Could be wrong, but I don't think so. Doctor, thanks so much for your, your taking your time and offering your opinion on this very, uh very topical subject matter uh, here in March 2021. Thank you. My pleasure. Happy to help.
straight from the cutter's mouth is now back with a friend of the program and a retina specialist. He is uh, a retina specialist who joined a private equity um, owned practice after sale to private equity. Uh, this is Dr. Greg Lee joining us from Atlanta, Georgia. Greg, welcome. Thanks for having me, Jay. So give the listeners a little bit of background. So how did you end up joining uh, the practice you're at, which is Georgia Retina, which is a private equity owned group? So coming out of fellowship, um, I was looking at the job market and I had been looking at um, a different variety of practices from small private practices to larger private practice groups, as well as um, uh, hospital-based systems are academic practices. I initially joined NYU as an academic practice and I was there for two years. And over time I was realizing that uh, I was uh, going to be happier in a setting where I'd have a little bit more flexibility and a little bit more ownership over my own practice. And so I started looking again and uh, the opportunity came up to look at Georgia Retina. Um, they had sold to private equity fairly early on in the private equity um, acquisition uh, schedule. And I knew two of the guys in the practice uh, very well who had, were on the younger side of the partnerships. Um, so they had been happy with their, uh, with their sale and the terms of their sale and the, how their practice was going. And so I decided to check it out and see what it was about. So tell us a little bit, you know, I'm sure you, and you were one of the first kind of early adopters, quote unquote, would be an appropriate term, right? Because you were somebody who, as you said, they were a little earlier to the scene. There's a little more of a track record now, but at the time you joined, they had sold, I think maybe a year before that, is that correct? Yeah, they had, been, they had sold in 2017 and, um, and then I joined in uh, 2019. Okay, so two years. So tell us a little bit, I'm sure you had some conceptions from mentors, questions from friends, you join. Tell us, just give us some perspective. What were some things that you thought going into the, the, the you know, agreement that were true? And what were some things that you end up being misconceptions that end up being a little different than what you expected? Now, I was unsure of what the role would be of the private equity firm within the management of the practice, um, because you hear all these things, um, you know, especially younger uh, on in your career, you don't really know what it means to manage practice at that point, or at least I didn't. And so I was a little bit nervous about how much uh, autonomy I would have over the practice or um, how much role the physicians would have in terms of the operations and management, and would there be pressures for uh, various things to drive profitability, or would there be cuts in our salary, things like that. And so I actually was very pleasantly surprised to find that the um, private equity firm was very well aligned um, with the physician interests in the group, and their hopes were to grow the practice and to continue growing the practice. And since uh, they bought the group, um, we've hired four new physicians and all solid people who are from good training backgrounds. And that was the other concern that I wasn't sure about was, would we still be able to recruit people who are very good? And um, I can tell you that I've been very happy with just the day-to-day -day operations of the practice. I haven't felt any pressure from any kind of profitability standpoint. And same with the other guys in the practice. They haven't noticed any difference from a day-to-day -day perspective from before the sale to after the sale. So I have to ask for the sake of our listeners, um, some of them are very cynical. Do you have any stake in the organization selling again? So, and, and you don't have to get into specifics if you're not comfortable, but like, but is your opinion biased in any way, potentially by wanting the group to be seen more positively or 
is your agreement essentially a salaried agreement and you just you know, are speaking from your heart? Right now I'm in the associate period, so I have no stake in the company itself at this time. And so I think private equity partnerships vary from group to group. And so some offer the ability to have some ownership. But at the end of the day, I think the ownership that you have is going to be really just a fraction of what you used to be able to own in terms of the practice. And so, you know, when it comes down to me having, uh, if I had like X amount of money to invest and I looked at the practice as an investment strategy versus stocks or real estate, I think that um, I would have to view it that way and it would make up a smaller portion of my portfolio in that sense. That makes a lot of sense. And sorry, just just occurred to me because that might be something people think about. You know, then we can jump into really the last question, which is again, a lot of the jobs that fellows are looking at or people moving jobs are looking at are going to either be private equity owned or potentially private equity owned in the future. Somebody who kind of was one of the first people to take that leap. Advice on what people should look for, advice on sort of things to ask about when they do that uh, transition. Yeah, I think the um the Interesting things uh, about private equity owned uh, partnerships are that from one to the other, they're really, really incredibly different. Um, You can look at one and think that they're similar to the other private equity owned group, but in the same way that one small practice is different from a large mega practice, um, it's just very different from practice to practice in terms of their structure, the partnership track, um, you know, how many years of associate period you have, what your salary is, if you have a chance to buy into the entity or not. And so all the real uh, pertinent questions I would say are, you know, how happy are the younger guys um, who joined the practice or who like since the private equity merger or um, who were uh, younger on in their career when they actually uh, went to private equity because those guys' happiness is really something that um, is not necessarily gonna be the same from one to the other. And uh, in terms of structure and protection, I don't think that I've heard of anyone actually being able to build in any protection for themselves if a private equity venture does happen for their uh, practice that they join. And in all honesty, for my, from my perspective, I would rather join a practice knowing that they were in with private equity and the sale had already occurred rather than having a practice that I join and they're promising me that they're not gonna sell the private equity and then two or three years in, just a really good deal comes up and they sell and then I'm left out in the, you know, in the cold with uh, nothing owned and no ability to really negotiate my own contract at that point. Um, And that's happened to several people. So in some ways, I'd rather sort of know what's going to happen or know who I'm getting in bed with rather than uh, being surprised. Great points. Well, Greg, we really appreciate coming on and giving your perspective on this uh, situation uh, and appreciate you I know you um, had talked about your, your partner's very supportive of you talking about this. And that's, that's important. Like you said, not, not every single situation is created equally. So uh, thanks for giving our listeners a little perspective uh, as part of this larger private equity episode. Well, thanks for having me, Jay. Straight from the Cutter's Mouth is now happy to be joined by a doctor who was an associate of the practice uh, when they were sold to private equity. Um, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me here. I uh, appreciate the opportunity to discuss this important topic, and I'm sure there's a lot of questions out in the community about this, and I hope to lend some interesting and insightful perspective. So share as much as you can. Uh, I know sometimes it's difficult to go into details, um, but a little bit about your experience. So where were you 
as an associate when the sale occurred? How did you find out? Um, what was your experience? So before we even begin, I want to just kind of give a disclaimer. These are my own personal opinions. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of disagreement with what I say. Uh, and I'm sure it's going to generate a lot of questions. And I think it's important to talk about these things because right now there's just so much speculation and so much uh, darkness within this question because it's such a big topic right now. Um, my personal, uh, without getting into too much detail, you know, I was still within the early stages of my career, uh, graduated fellowship, uh, and then was uh, uh, came to this practice and was ramping up my practice, was getting uh, comfortable, uh, you know, being on my own. And then I was certainly a few years into my partnership track when we were notified that the uh, practice itself was going to be acquired by the private equity. And so uh, there was uh, there was a lot of, uh, you know, mixed feelings about the initial uh, announcement. And it's also kind of tied to almost like the stages of grief where you have initially a shock and denial followed by pain and guilt, anger and bargaining, depression. And I think at this point I'm, I'm at the place of acceptance and hope. Uh, and certainly it was a very tumultuous path to get here, but I'm glad I'm here. And uh, a lot of this has to do with understanding why practices sell and even your own personal understanding of why the practice sold you know, uh, changes over time, depending on which stage of grief you're in. And so initially, you can be very angry, you can be, you can feel betrayed, uh, you can feel like the rug was pulled under, out from underneath you. Uh, and then you kind of start working through that. And then you become more understanding about the economic forces, about the motivations of the different partners, about long term perspectives, and that kind of brings you to a place, or at least brought me to a place now where I understand it. I don't necessarily 100% agree um, with it, but you know, I also do understand that it's a much more complex issue than when I initially thought it would be. Yeah, that's, that's true. And I think that um, I was talking to some of the other doctors about this, this subject. I think the, one of the reasons it's such a controversial subject in our field is there's a very clear delineation uh, in terms of stakes and conflicts of interest on both sides, right? So people who are looking for a job, like the, the fellows I work with, or people who are earlier in their career have not reached a partnership status, obviously are not necessarily going to be keen on it, especially if they don't have much information. Uh, when they expected maybe it's not proper to have expectations. The world is a dynamic place, but they have a certain expectation that this is the way their career is going to look. And this is the way that their practice ownership is going to look. And it ends up being something very different. And then on the other side, you have people who feel like they've built their practices over time, that they've owned them for X amount of years. They view a field that has declining reimbursements, that a potential injection bubble is disappearing. They view a very lucrative offer and an opportunity to stabilize their finances. And they view it as their prerogative to be able to do it. And there aren't really many people in between, you know, people think talk about like younger partners may be kind of torn depending on their earning potential. But I think that's why there seems to be like this generational divide. And it's important, I think, like to bring people together, kind of discuss this in this manner. So 
how were you notified, right? So like, this is something I've had friends informally tell there's been different ways they found out was, did you find out, is it like a, you know, NBA player where someone texted you and you, it was like, you found out from someone <laughs> outside the group. Did you find out from the group? Did you find out in an email? Like, I'm just curious, how did that process work? Yeah. So, uh, you know, something as big as a acquisition to PE uh, by PE is huge news within the community. And so, I found out from a from a in-person uh, discussion with the partners, which I think was the appropriate way to find out. However, you know, I actually heard about this weeks before I was told officially, because mm-hmm. other practices hear about things. Because you know, a PE group doesn't just talk to one practice in one in one market or one city or one location; they talk to multiple practices and there's grumblings and maybe people don't want to talk about it out in the out in the light just yet but once a deal goes through that of course generates a huge amount of buzz and and then of course the associates come up i mean i remember uh being in the or uh and uh i was passing by one of the one of the scrub uh techs who asked how did it how to how was i handling the news and this was weeks before i this was weeks before I heard officially. And I said, what are you talking about? Mm. You know, um, this is, this is outlandish. This is ridiculous. And they, and they of course immediately realized now in retrospect, I hadn't found out yet. Right. So there was this backtracking of, Oh, I'm sorry. I, I must've been mistaken. It must've been another practice. And, you know, I laughed it off and in retrospect, haha, the joke's on me. <laughs> um, no, but your your earlier point, Jay, about about academia and fellows coming out, I think there's a lot of bias within academia about PE just because it's still so new. And when the trainees go through academic programs, go through fellowship, go through residency, they don't actually get much emphasis on the business side of ophthalmology and the business side of retina. I mean, thinking about my own personal path, not that long ago through fellowship, uh, you know, I didn't even, I learned, I was so focused on the medicine. I was so focused on retina. I was so focused on surgery that I never actually really took the time to learn about coding, to learn about what qualifies as a level four, E&M codes versus I codes versus, you know, things like that. And that just kind of gives you a perspective as to how unprepared I think a lot of the trainees are coming out of fellowship, out of residency. And when they are approached with a PE opportunity, or when they are an associate and then PE comes in, um, it cha- it's, uh, it's difficult to handle. And so that's where a lack of understanding about the business side of retina puts people at a disadvantage. And I would argue that the PE groups are motivated to keep doctors in the dark. And mm-hmm. the reason is once you don't understand the market forces that's driven these decisions, you are just like sheep that go along with it. And that is why this conversation is so important because it lends a lot of perspective for the doctors, for the retina specialists, for the uh, up and coming trainees to understand why these things are happening, to not be angry about it and to look at it as just another opportunity, maybe one that's different than they initially signed up for, but an opportunity nonetheless. Um, One, uh, I, I had a few things here you know i think the reason why practices sell i think there's three main reasons um 
And, not, and the first one, of course, we can't get around this topic. The first reason is money, you know, and, we, and classically I heard from, as I was in training, you know, PE practice to sell because the majority of partners are getting older. They're looking to retire. They're looking to exit the entity. And so they're looking for their quote, golden, golden parachute, where they're looking to retire with a, with a large cash infl- infusion, and that will guarantee their retirement their way of life, their families, things like that, which makes sense. But then, you know, why would a younger partner maybe just hitting the peak of their careers, why would they sell? And so I think a lot of it has to do with a balance of how much risk you're going to take on, how much, uh, how, 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 how lucrative do you think the practice will continue to be uh, and what the different changes in you know, CME reimbursements and uh, Medicare costs, Medicaid, how much of that's going to change in the next 10 years? And that's influenced by politics, right? Different presidential administrations can change that. Different congressional sessions and the way they lean liberal or conservative can change that. And so you have to keep those in perspective. You know, I mean, as an example, for a lo- for a younger partner, when they get the buyout, uh, that's money up front. Now, they may actually, if you do the math, depending on where they are in their career, they may actually come out even 20 years down the road from the money they're taking now and taking a pay cut versus keeping on going as a partner. But that's a lot of risk because what if you know, another pandemic hits, right, and the business goes down again? What if the reimbursement cuts keep coming? And what happens when we have all these new FDA-approved treatments for wet AMD that does not require monthly injections, how much of a percentage of your business right now are monthly injections? And if that goes away because of the PDS, if that goes away because you have sustained delivery devices that are injectables, if there's any kind of surgical thing, if there's a gene therapy play, how much of that will affect your business five years from now, 10 years from now? You have to think about that. But if you can take that money now be smart about it, invest it, and grow it, you can actually still come out ahead as a young partner. And so a lot of it has to do with risk. Um, And people, and a lot of the fellows uh, and residents may not understand this, or they understand it, but they may not be keen to it. As a partner, you're still open to a ton of risk financially, because uh, as an example, you know, I've known other practices during the COVID period that tried to weather the storm. And unfortunately, a lot of practices c- could not weather the storm and shut down. But the practice itself, if it's trying to survive, it's trying to get along, it's trying to limp along, and your revenue decreases by half, by 60%, by 70%, and you still have all this fixed overhead to cover, as a partner, par- as part of your contractual agreements, you are actually contractually obligated to recapitalize the practice if the practice does not meet its debts and it does not meet its operating expenses. So everyone thinks about, oh, I'm going to be a partner. I'm going to make X amount of money. But if the, that's during the boom times. But when it's not the boom times, you may be on the hook to recapitalize by $100,000. You have to put another $200,000 in of your own money to keep the practice afloat per your partnership agreement. And that's one of the things I think that when COVID hit, it really kind of put that at the forefront because people didn't really have to think about that. 
so the so the so that's the catastrophic event is another reason why people sell to PE is because you take all that risk off the table. What if another COVID wave hits? What if the country goes on lockdown again three years from now because something else happens? If the public health officials are are to be believed, another pandemic will hit. It's just the question of when. People say this is a 100-year pandemic. What if it becomes a 10-year pandemic and another one hits? And so these things you have to think about. And of course, the last one is local market forces. If a private equity pump company already bought a major practice, a competing practice within the city, and is already starting to consolidate referral practices, starting to consolidate, maybe bought out the major anterior segment practice that is feeding you referrals, then you see your referral base go down and down and down. As a retina practice, you know, you depend on these referral practices to feed you business because we're kind of like the secondary doctors. We're not out there advertising. We're not out there trying to, you know, get people to come in through the doors with billboards. We're more dependent upon our optometry and uh, general ophthalmology colleagues to send us patients. And if that dries up, what is what are you going to do in order to respond to that change in the local market force? And maybe you need more capital to expand the practice. Maybe you need more capital to acquire other businesses, other practices that can become referral bases for you. And that takes a lot of money. And so those are the three major things, I think, that cause practices to sell, things that you have to consider. Um, and so that, so when practice does sell, it's not one or two things. It's a perfect storm of all these things that happen. And that's certainly something that I think a lot of the younger trainees need to be, need to keep in perspective. And that's why, you know, I worked through my stages of grief. And at the end of it, I realized and I accept the reasons for why my practice sold. And I'm okay with it. Yeah, that's a really good summation of the situation. And, and I think uh, one of the things you referenced early was Again, the academic disconnect. We have more fellowships that are in private practice settings over time, but there just isn't much knowledge on the academic side. And I think the other thing you emphasize is just how small a field retina is. It's kind of like um, if you know if, if medicine had was with different high schools and retina is like this small private high school where everyone knows everyone else's own business. You know, compared to some other fields where it's you know tens of thousands of physicians, it's only a couple thousand physicians who are surgical retina doctors. So it's harder to have quote unquote secrets, you know, when, when acquisitions and stuff happen. Um, last kind of question is what was kind of your immediate and now ripple effects after the sale? Uh, did, did you see any substantial changes to your day to day? Did you see any substantial contractual changes, at least to what you're allowed or comfortable talking about? Um, and is there anything on the horizon that looked like changes that um, you didn't perceive immediately at the time of sale. Yeah. So, so a couple, I mean, there's, it's a, it's a good question, Jay, that you're asking a couple of things I can't really talk about uh, a couple of things that I have some, you know, things that I want to share. Uh, yes. So the, I think right now, you know, being part of it, <clears throat> it's actually been uh, uh, surprisingly good experience i have not seen much change but at the same time when you talk to people you know change comes slowly and uh and usually it takes a year or two and certainly also it depends on the private equity uh, practice that you partner with because different practices have different management styles 
there's certain practices that kind of leave you alone and let you figure things out. Um, although there's pros and cons to that. There's other, pra- there's other uh, pr- uh, partnerships where they come in with a management team and they upend everything. And in the end, you have to think about it. You know, private equity is in the business not to help patients. It's in the business to make money. And if you're helping patients along the way, uh, that's a great thing. And so I'm sure that with our, with our current setup, you know, if the entity is not growing, if we're not meeting performance targets, um, that laissez-faire approach to our management style may change. And that's something that remains to be seen. So I'm hopeful, um, but we'll see what happens. Um, but of course, <clears throat> you know, what's more important for your listeners is, you know, I was an associate that was on the partnership track. I came here, uh, I signed up for the job, assuming I was going to be made partner. And, uh, and uh, now that things have changed, of course, their contract has to change too. And so not to belabor too much of a point on it, I think it's important to actually consider, you know, if you're an associate and you're going to be bought out, you know, you know do you stay, do you leave? A lot of it is not as cut and dry as, uh, as some people think. Um, the important thing about the contract changes is that you have to negotiate something that's fair to both you as well as to the practice. Uh, because they're not going to just going to give you everything you want because uh, that would just not be good. They didn't, you know, PE didn't increase their valuation or become successful because they just kind of give you everything you want. But you have to think about what's important to you because leverage, as you know, your leverage peaks during negotiations just before you sign the practice. And once you join the PE group, your leverage goes down and it peaks again at the second sale, five years down the road, seven years down the road, who knows? And so you have to think about, you know, the advantages, uh, uh, what you bring to the table and what you can offer. And we can talk about that if there's interest there uh, later on. But, you know, things that I'm hopeful about is that, uh, is that uh, you know, this is going to be successful, that, uh, you know, this, th- that my job itself, I enjoy coming to work every day and I hope that stays the same. And if the culture and the environment changes uh, down the road, certainly I am not um, I am not averse to looking at other opportunities. But it's kind of a, it's kind of a give and take because because I still you know I got into this because I want to take care of my patients. I want to operate. I want to work with my hands. I want to teach. I want to you know be involved in research. And uh, right now I still have the opportunity to do that. And until that changes, I'm optimistic. Thanks again for sharing your perspective on a difficult subject and uh, for being part of this panel um, kind of discussion. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jay. Many thanks to all five of our correspondents who joined us for this. And again, a lot of appreciation to those who came out and candidly spoke on this topic on both sides. Uh, you can always find episodes of ours on our website, retinapodcast.com. That's R-E-T-I-N-A podcast.com. All 290 episodes, including this one, can be found there sorted by category. In addition, you can find links to uh, subscribe and get on the email list so you can get updates on the most recent episodes. We're on Facebook and on Twitter at Retina Podcast. And you can also subscribe on your uh, mobile device in the Apple or Android uh, podcast app. Remember that you can always contact us by clicking on the link on the website or by emailing us directly at retinapodcast at gmail.com. 
Thanks again to all our contributors. Thanks to uh, Drs. Angela Chang, uh, Louis Kai specifically, who handled a lot of the audio for this episode, and Mike Minacasa for their work as part of our great team. Thank you to you listeners, the articles you read and publish, the conversations you inspire here each week, and the patients you take care of on a daily basis. We'll be back next week. This is Jay Schreeder signing off. Feeling. This is straight from the cutter's mouth. <laughs> <laughs>